Physician assistants, like other health professionals, are excited and willing to provide medical care in an emergency or disaster situation. But many state laws do not contain the language that would allow this to happen. While several states have adopted language to address these concerns, many have not. To allow for the most effective response to such situations, every state should authorize its PAs to respond to disasters and emergencies. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, your host, and with me today is Dr. Matt Baker, PA and the Dean of the School of Science and Health at Philadelphia University. Today we're discussing PAs and disaster medicine. Hi, Matt. Welcome to ReachMD. Hello, Lisa. How are you? I am great. Thank you. Matt, tell us, what is a disaster? Well, a disaster is defined by many different agencies, but basically what it is, is it's an event of any sort that causes a massive amount of disruption of functioning of a society or part of a society that exceeds the resources of that community. So it's not doesn't have to be a disaster that exceeds the resources of the whole country, but just the community that it's in or the area that it's in in which they would then request help. What is the scope of disasters, and can you discuss some examples of recent disasters? Well, there's a very wide scope of disasters. Obviously, the first ones we think about, at least from recent memory, are what we would classify as natural disasters. So floods from massive floods like Katrina and the recent ones in Galveston and Iowa to tsunamis like the one in Indonesia to hurricanes that we get in Florida a lot to things like wildfires out west to volcanic activity, certainly earthquakes like the one, enormous ones in Pakistan, Italy. And those are sort of the natural disaster realms, and there's you know certainly quite a few of these, and we see these a lot. Man-made disasters also happen quite frequently. Anything from train accidents, and we've had these in New York. We had one, a monorail accident at Disney World recently in the last two days. School shootings like the one at Virginia Tech. Also things like the event, a terrorism event in 9-11, bring those sorts of man-made disasters to home. And then you have these naturally sort of occurring disease epidemic, pan-epidemic, like flu epidemics, the 1918 through 1925 flu epidemic would be a good example. We are obviously keeping a careful watch on the swine flu and on the avian flu. Tell us about the stages of the disaster cycle. Well, there are four stages of the disaster cycle, and these are not actually, they don't always go in the order they're supposed to go. There is the mitigation stage for us, and by the way, these stages are just ways that emergency planners look to coordinate and organize preparedness efforts. So mitigation would be a phase where people would do a vulnerability assessment of how vulnerable, say, a place in, say, California would be to an earthquake or to how vulnerable a military facility could be to a terrorist attack. And they would try to mitigate or lessen the effects of those or prevent those events from happening by engineering things, security measures, other certain measures, infrastructure measures that can help mitigate some of those problems. From there, we look at preparedness. Preparedness is our ability to do drills, both tabletop exercises and what we call full-scale exercises or activities that prepare us by creating a disaster plan for each organization. A small organization like a home should have their own disaster plan, and then units in your work and your your work as a whole and the government and your your city, state, and county 
and state and federal government have national, you know, disaster plans. They call it the framework. And then taking those plans and exercising them and practicing those. So that would be the second stage. The other stage is obviously after the activity or the disaster has happened, the response to that disaster, how we actually mobilize our reserve course, how we mobilize our EMS, how we coordinate amongst many hospitals and mass casualty incidents. We always talk about in this stage our ability to prepare for increasing capacity, like surge capacity, like more beds in hospitals, more ventilators. We have a national strategic stockpile for certain types of medications. So how you bring those to bear are all part of our response. And the recovery is the phase where we deal with putting things back together. This was something that FEMA did a lot of, you know, say walking in after a major tornado and helping people to rebuild and helping people with their psychological traumas and ramifications. And so the recovery is also a very, very important aspect of this, though that's one that sort of gets a little bit less attention in the media than would say the response. So what agencies are involved with this disaster management? Well, there's a tremendous amount of agencies. On the federal level, there are a variety of agencies under three big umbrellas. The Department of Defense obviously plays a giant role in this, having a lot of resources to bring to bear airplanes, helicopters, and ships, and boats as far as the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard is in the Department of Homeland Security. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the military has a lot of resources to bear. And when we think about the military and homeland disasters, we think about the National Guard a lot, because the National Guard has both a federal role, and it has a state role to respond to local emergencies. The next one would be the Department of Homeland Security, in which the Coast Guard falls under under peacetime, and also the FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, falls under. The Department of Health and Human Services also has a very large role in disaster preparedness. They coordinate the CDC and the DMAT teams and the strategic stockpile and a variety of different programs. So there's a variety of federal programs. Obviously, a lot of preparedness and a lot of disaster management is provided on a state level by the state disaster management agencies and on the county and local level. So there's a variety of agencies. There's also a lot of NGOs. There's the Red Cross. There's the, you know, depending on where you are in the world, there's a variety of different NGOs and non-governmental agencies that work in the realm of disasters. And there's a lot of private sector companies that help with response to disasters in local and national areas. A good example with this would be the Walmart's response to a variety of recent disasters where they were able to ship water and certain supplies down to areas that needed them. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with Dr. Matt Baker, PA and the Dean of the School of Science and Health at Philadelphia University. Today we're discussing physician assistance and disaster medicine. So Dr. Baker, what is the current role of a PA in, in volunteering for disasters, and, and what's the best way for them to make a positive impact? There's a variety of things people can do depending on the amount of responsibility and the amount of involvement they'd like to have. So at a very local level, they could 
sign up with their local county emergency management agency, or they can sign up with a local volunteer fire department. At work, if, say, they work in the emergency department, a lot of people sign up for the volunteer teams that would respond to an outside emergency, and they join their disaster management committee. On a federal level and on a state level, there's a variety of things they can join. They can certainly get involved with the DMAT team, which is a disaster medical assistant teams that are run locally, but they're coordinated federally. And some of these are very specialized. They have a variety of health care providers, of which PAs are one of them. Some of them have specialties like crush injuries, but um, some of them are general, and they would be all volunteer and respond to emergencies. But there's other ways that people certainly can get involved through the Medical Reserve Corps, which are also coordinated federally but run locally, and through the, the National Guard, through the Reserve Corps, the Public Health Service. So there's a variety of ways PAs can get involved, and they are very involved in almost all that level. You can see from everywhere from the CDC to Department of Homeland Security to the National Guard, PAs in leadership roles in disaster management and medicine. So there are many highly skilled PAs that at times of disaster feel a need to go help. 9-11 is a really good example where people wanted to get in their car. It's, it's local for many people, and they want to go and help. Can you explain why it's not a great idea to just show up? This was something that we got to see a little bit more detailed during Katrina. People want to help, but it often becomes less coordinated and, and causes increased confusion if people just sort of show up to the scene. Even people that were asked to show up, like the National Guard troops, came and at the beginning the command and control was not there to actually make a lot of the volunteers that showed up and a lot of the material that showed up and supplies effective. So it's always best for a variety of issues. One is actually the coordination. Two is actually your own personal safety. Three is issues of your verification of your credentials, your malpractice, your workman's comp if you should get hurt doing volunteer work. All of these things make it really, really complicated, which is why people shouldn't just sort of show up to an emergency. They should try to channel themselves into an agency and sign up through that agency and get credentialed through that agency and then they would be called upon if they were needed. And so that would be the best way. And the United States government and the state governments are working on, though this is not perfect because it's state by state as far as the regulations here, a variety of different frameworks like the ESAR VHP and the EMAC system to credential and to look after credentialing issues, liability protection, workman's comp, and other issues. So let's talk about PAs and state licensing. I think this is a big issue that people don't really understand, is that if we leave our state and we leave our supervising physician, we can't help in a disaster in many cases. And I know there are many states that have adopted language to change that, but there are still many that have not. Now, if a PA gets involved with a disaster medical assistance team, for example, are those no longer an issue? They still are, but it's a complicated state-by-state issue. And after Katrina, year after year, we've tried to address these issues on a federal level and on a state level so that there is the ESAR VHP, which is the Emergency Systems for Advanced Registration of Volunteer Healthcare Professionals. And this is run out of the Department of Health and Human Services, HRSA, 
and it is state-based, but they have federal guidelines for credentialing and liability protection and workman's compensation. Obviously, you have to be signed up and credentialed through one of these state agencies first, and then there has to be some other criteria. For instance, the governor of that state has to declare a state of emergency, and then things get kicked in. There's a variety of other things that get kicked in. For instance, if there's a flood in Florida and you're in a DMAT in Pennsylvania and they want to call you up, there is now an ability for the state by state to have an agreement to allow you to come down there, which was not the case several years ago. And these are called EMACs, and these are emergency management assistance compacts that occur, this framework that occurs nationally. But not every state has these signed, and not every state has regulations that fully protect the health providers when they go to different things. None of them, almost none of them protect against an egregious error, but there is some fairly reasonable protection under many of these new statutes and many of these new programs that people can sign up for. That's why it's important to do it through an agency. So you're not entirely protected, but through many things, like if you're formally in a DMAT system and you're called up to another state that has an agreement with your state, yes, you have certainly a certain amount of protection. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is if you get injured down there, who's responsible for the workman's compensation. And those are issues that are being worked out pretty much all the time. Well, if you get involved with an agency, you also have the ability then to prepare appropriately. So if you're a PA, you're saying, okay, I want to be available the next time someone needs me. So I'm going to get involved with an agency. Other than that, there's education out there that you can prepare yourself with. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. There's a variety of free resources. And those, once you get involved with any of the agencies, they're going to make sure that you get that training. But there's all types of NIMS training and these ICS courses which are available for free. Most of them are online. Some of them are not in person, but they're all free and they're available through, uh, you can get these through the FEMA website. And those are a good starting place. Basic disaster life support courses and advanced disaster life support courses are a good secondary step to get prepared. And we just gave a basic disaster life support course at the AAPA National Conference in San Diego, and it went quite well. The, the uh, attendance was very good. Those are certainly things that people can do. Well, thank you, Dr. Baker, for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. And thanks for listening.